volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. Hello, and welcome to season six of Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership. I am Sal Sylvester, your host and founder and CEO of 512 Solutions, an executive coaching and leadership development firm based in Boulder, Colorado, helping organizations create healthy, aligned, and more human workplaces. I'm also the founder and CEO of Coach Metrics, a cloud-based tool we develop to measure behavioral change in coaching and leadership development. So as you may know, season six is all about creating healthy and aligned teams at the top executive teams, senior leadership teams, and extended leadership teams. I'm thrilled to have a special guest with me today. In fact, I'm honored to have Jody Fletcher on the show today. In this episode, Jody and I dive deep into the ingredients of high-performing teams and leading during crisis. A few headlines about Jody, and you'll hear much more about him in the interview. Jody spent 29 years in the Navy, 20-plus of those years where he spent in small highly elite recon and special operations teams. You'll hear more about that. His service to our country included several combat deployments. Jody spent the last decade of his career advising two-star and three-star general officers with organizations of more than 45,000 service members and civilians. Jody's experience advising leaders spans between heads of state and distinguished members of foreign governments, C-suite executives of major organizations, to having tea with village elders deep in the middle of enemy-held territory. Jody also has a Master of Science in Emergency and Disaster Management. Let's go to this really amazing interview with Jody Fletcher now. Jody, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sal. It's great to great to have you. It's been really an honor and a pleasure to get to know you over the last several months and some of the work that we're doing together. First of all, thank you for your service, Jody, and it's an honor to have you on the show. Can you give us a couple of headlines to maybe paint a little bit more of a detail of your background in, in service in the Navy? Absolutely. I joined the Navy in 1992, so I retired a couple of years ago after a little over 29 years of service. And I was a hospital corpsman by trade, which in layman's term is a medic. I did Mm -hmm. that in the reconnaissance, force reconnaissance and Marine Special Operations Command once we stood that up for about the first 20 plus years of my career. And then I went on to be a command master chief, where it's more of a a senior leadership position working directly for two and three-star generals. So I spent the first couple decades doing a lot of the fun stuff. And then the <laughs> last decade, you know, really focused on upper level leadership, which I always tell people I didn't anticipate loving that part of the job as much as I did, which is really what led me into the coaching industry once I retired. Wow, interesting. Very cool. Jody, for our listeners, I mean, you st- you started your career 
in the Marine Recon. And then the Marine Corps stood up a special operations command called the Raiders. What drew you to the special operations community? I went in with that goal of being in the special operations community and just kind of, you know, I always share this story. Like I went in with the my sights set on being a SEAL because I was in the Navy and that's that's what you know. Mm-hmm. And I could not do pull-ups when I joined the Navy. I could swim and run like crazy, but I just couldn't do enough pull-ups to pass the test. And, you know, I believe in the universe and things happen for a reason. And long story short, when I was in Somalia, I met a guy who was a recon corpsman and he said, hey, they just stood up this thing called the recon pipeline. And he explained it as a two-year, you know, training pipeline. And the way he described it to me, Sal, is what drew me in because he said, nobody knows who we are. We're the underdogs of the underdog. And he said, but you'll never work with a better group of people. Yeah. And that's what I was really after more than any kind of title or anything. So of course, when I got back from that short deployment, I looked into it and signed up. And the funny thing is, it was a SEAL who screened me to get Mm. into the pipeline because it's the same screening process. And I crushed it so hard because by then I had figured out how to do pull-ups and all that. (laughs) And I crushed it so hard. He's like, I can get you into buds like next month. And I said, no, I appreciate that chief or master chief or whatever he was. But I, I, this thing is really drawing me, and that's so. That's that's how I ended up where I did. Yeah. Um, and then I was in the reconnaissance, marine reconnaissance, and I know a lot of people are like, "Well, you're in the navy, but how does that work?" So, though the marines don't like to admit it, they are a department of the navy, mm-hmm. and the navy provides all of the medical services for the marine corps. So, you know, my dad was a corpsman with the yeah. marines as well, and spent his entire cool. twenty four years with the marines as well. So. Though I was in the Navy, I literally spent my entire career with the Marines. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. What what a family history of service. Incredible. And then, Jody, you transitioned kind of from recon to the Raiders, which again is a special operations group within the Marine Corps. Can you tell us a little bit about how a Raider team is structured? Just to, again, just to give our subscribers a little bit of context here before we get into sort of our core topic today. Raider teams are normally about 20 people, and you've got CSOs, critical skills operators, and those are the Marines. And then you have now, we're called Special Operations Independent Duty Corpsman, SOIDC. That's the recon corpsman, classically, we're in the teams. And then there's other enablers, there's EOD and and all kinds of other people that bring additional assets to the team. So when you deploy your, you know, 20-ish people in the team. Yes. Okay. EOD, that's really the explosive specialist. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Sorry. I, I tend to talk in alphabet yeah, soup. Okay. So yeah, those are those are the explosive experts. And we have people that are experts in radios and you know, talking to the airplanes that we're using for different things and stuff like that. So you're on this highly elite specialized team, your experience sort of at that small team level, what were the key ingredients in forming and maintaining the effectiveness of, of a spec op team? And, and by the way, as you know, I mean, part of what I'm hoping is that we can draw some lessons ultimately for corporate teams who I don't think are under 
nearly the, the same amount of pressure and in most cases don't have the same implications of their outcome, but there's probably some really great lessons learned. When you were on those elite teams, how did you all think about like the the core ingredients to forming and maintaining your effectiveness? The core ingredient, in my opinion, is camaraderie. It's mm-hmm. camaraderie and truly caring about the other people on your team. Because if you don't have that, everything else is going to fall apart. You can be very good at your job, but when when you're in those moments in of extreme pressure, whether it's you know life or death kind of stuff or gazillions of dollars, pressure is yeah. pressure. Right. And being able to rely on the person to your left and right and know that they're going to be there for you, that's the key ingredient. To me, that's the foundation on which everything else is built. Mm. How do you build that? We we think I think similarly, we talk a lot about trust, connection as a core ingredient in the corporate world. How do you build that level of camaraderie and care for each other? I think some of it is- Let me ask that a little different. How How did you build it on the teams at the time? I think some of it is through experience. You, you need each other. A lot of it is through leadership. What is, for lack of a better term, what's allowed and what's not the leadership if you've got a great team, everybody's pulling their weight and everybody's supporting one another. And you learn to appreciate and understand what everybody else's job is because everybody on that team has kind of a specialized job. Like I did the medical stuff. Other people did the radios. You know, there's every everybody does the same thing, but you also have a specialty. Mm. And I see this a lot in corporate as well, Sal, where people don't necessarily appreciate because they don't understand what another person's job is. Oh, interesting. And a part of the special operations team dynamic, I guess, is that we all cross train because you never know when somebody's going to get injured or whatever and not be able to perform their job, whether it's on a mission or just in garrison. So there's a lot of cross training that goes on. And this is when it really dawned on me is when I have a better understanding of what that person does, then I truly appreciate what they bring to the team. And I think that's the key ingredient is seeking to understand what's going on with everybody else and not just getting stuck in your own world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking about so many more corporate examples where that true understanding of what others do, whether it's between sales and marketing, that's the typical tension point or between sales and engineering where, you know, sales is selling something that engineering hasn't built, but that appreciation for what those people do and then figuring out how to leverage each other is really critical. It's part of what I'm hearing you say right now. Absolutely. And I've created this little equation, if you will. It's it's understanding equals appreciation and then appreciation equals better communication. So once you understand somebody and then you're able to appreciate them on a different level, that changes how you communicate with them. Mm-hmm. So you're not just going to walk in, you know, and I always use the example, it's easy in the special operations world where, and my wife will be the first one to tell you, the deployments were not as bad as the workups, the training before the deployment. Oh, interesting. So we would train a year, year and a half before we would actually deploy. And that's a lot of like being gone and home for, you know, gone for two weeks, home for a couple of days, gone for a week. And so when you're in, in garrison and you need something, you've got a finite amount of time. So you really want to get what you have to at work accomplished. 
whether it's getting new gear, getting a pay problem fixed, whatever. The perception from a lot of the operators toward the administrative folks was their answer was always no, or that's somebody else's job or something else. And then from the administrative side of the folks in Garrison, the impression or perception of the operators is that they're a bunch of cowboys who just come in demanding things. Hmm. And when I became the command master chief at MARSOC, I I didn't realize that was going to be the crux of my problem to deal with was this tribalism and getting everybody to first seek to understand what other people do. And I started asking the question of the operators, well, hey, would you want to work in, in the pay department? They're like, gosh, no, that would be the worst thing I could imagine. Exactly. But the person who works there loves that job and they're amazing at it. So how can you show appreciation to them? And then once you start doing that with everybody, so then the administrative folks realize, wow, the operators aren't a bunch of cowboys. They're just gone all the time. And so when they are home, they want to come in and get the problems fixed very quickly so they can go home and spend time with their families mm -hmm. before they have to leave again. Yeah. So that's that, you know, the understanding first, and then the appreciation started to come into play. So when the operators would come in with a, you know, a pay problem, how the administrative folks communicated with them was then much different because the understanding and appreciation was there. Yeah. I, I love that. If I maybe relate that to some of the executive teams that we work with, I think some of the best leaders and executive team leaders, they value the admin functions, right? So they value their chief legal officer and that function. They value the chief human resource officer and that function. And most of the time that's true. But at lower levels, maybe like mid-level leadership teams or senior leadership teams, not executive teams, oftentimes they're not valuing their HR business partner in, a, in the way that you're describing here. And I think they're missing out on something really key to creating an optimal organization. 100%. And that, I call that, who are your customers? And mm. helping organizations yeah. truly treat one another internally as customers to gain the customer loyalty, to gain the positive feedback, all of those things, if you look at it from that perspective, yeah. your organization will start to function better and more efficiently because everybody is, is getting along and, and working to support each other to find a way to yes instead of defaulting to no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Jody, you mentioned something I'd love to just touch on here, the workups versus the deployments. And I, I remember I, I spent, I had a very short time in the military, but nonetheless, it was a very formative experience for me. And one of the things that stuck with me was the phrase that we used to say, you fight like you train. And I brought that into my work, meaning, you know, the way that we work the way that we train when it's not in combat or when it's, you know, prepping for something to go live matters. And if you screw around during that period of time, you're going to get similar results in the actual situation or action or combat. How did you, how do you think about that? Like, how, tell us more about kind of this thinking between the workups versus the deployments and, and maybe how that could apply to corporate work. I couldn't agree more. I, I feel the exact same you know, you train how you fight. And it's a matter of doing, this is really an integrity issue. Mm. Whenever you're training, are you truly treating it like a training event for whatever your 
stress point is. So for us, it's, you know, it's combat. For others, it's it's whatever that organization is involved in, but it's still a stress point because you are going to default to that last level of training when things really go south. And this is where I think high functioning teams excel because, and this is a silly example, but I think it, it maybe will land. One of the first schools that I went through, we had to do, we were running with these giant logs, right? Mm-hmm. And we I've were wearing them on TV. Right. And yeah, <laughs> it's a telephone pole, you know, just cut into like a 10 foot or 12 foot section and we have to run with it. And we had to do it with gas masks on. And I know you've probably experienced wearing a gas mask. It's extremely mm-hmm. hard to breathe. It's incredibly hard. Yeah. And I just remember, Sal, as we were doing this, thinking to myself, I can't crack this mask to get a breath of air because we're training as if we were in, you know, a gas environment. But I looked around and there were people that were cracking their masks to let fresh air in so they could Mm. breathe. And I feel like in these, the higher functioning teams, people take things more seriously and are going to do the hard thing, regardless of whether or not it's real. And I'm using my air quotes for those that can't see me. Even though it's in training and it's not real, it's vital. It's it's vital to what you're going to be doing later. It's extremely important because if you if you don't, you're going to default to cracking that mask when you actually are in an environment where you shouldn't. Yeah, oh, that's such a that's such a great story. The, those little things matter, and things quickly can go south, uh, whether it's business or combat. Well, and, Jody, and yeah, I was going to just working with some construction companies. We see this as well. Mm. because they're, you know, doing a lot of safety stuff. They're rigged up to lines and everything when they're working at heights and the same thing. So when you're training, are you training as if you're really rigged up at height or are you just going through the motions and putting the check in the box? Oh, that's such a great point. Yeah. There's a safety element to this too, right? You can quickly relate this to safety element in, in construction environment or manufacturing or mining or whatever the industry is. The way that you practice, the way that you think about it, will will then show up in your safety implications and reports and all of that. Absolutely, and you really could even break it down to cyber security awareness training. You know, are you clicking mm. through that? Or are you actually paying attention to any updates that have happened since last yeah. year? And we all joke about in the military, at least. I can't remember the names. It was Tina and Tim or something, and they were these avatars that would take you through this cyber awareness training, which mm. was silly. And truly a check in the box. But if you're paying attention to those things, that might prevent you from, you know, clicking something that allows your organization's uh, system to be infected. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Jody, talk a little bit about leadership under crisis. I mean, you, you served several combat tours in your career. How do things change on a team or, or how do you, how as a leader, do you have to think differently? Uh, under when when things are chaotic and under stress and in crisis, and this is to me when you're leading during crisis, especially in a team, everybody on the team takes on a leadership role, and that's that's the mark of a high functional team yeah. is when everybody takes on the accountability for what's going on, and you don't as the leader or whatever piece of that you play. So in the medical side, I was not the team leader in many of my teams especially not during combat, right? Those were Marines playing those roles. And when somebody was injured, then the leadership shifts to me. 
because I'm the one who's controlling the casualty and what's going on with that, but there's still other things going on around. So everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. The other thing I would say, Sal, and it's it's a common saying in our world is slow is smooth and smooth is fast mm. and calm breeds calm. And this I've taken into the corporate world as much as possible. Whenever, whenever things are really going south and it's a high stress moment, the more calm you are, the more likely you are to come out better on the, on the back end of it. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's leadership at every level, right? Obviously the leader of the team needs to be extremely calm, but so does everybody else who's dealing with the situation that's, that's directly at hand. Mm-hmm. And that can be everything from a financial crisis to actual combat, right? It doesn't matter. You're all dealing with these stressful moments. And I think you know this about me, Sal. I love Trash TV. And one of my favorite shows is, <laughs> is Below Deck. You can learn so many leadership or you know, talk about leadership traits because of the show. But when things start going bad on the boat, everybody on the crew gets really mad at each other and they start lashing out at each other. A high-functioning team's not going to do that. Yeah. That's the mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. That makes for great drama and uh, reality TV, but doesn't translate well to performance. Right. And it's interesting because as the crews go through the different seasons, you can see some of the better boat captains, leaders lead in a way where they're calm. And so when mm-hmm. things go south, yep. the whole crew is calm. Yeah. You know, generally the crew or the, the team members are going to fall in line with the leader is doing. And that's what I always express to leaders is you need to model the behavior that you want to see in your teams. Mm -hmm. Jody, to me, this, this goes back to your first point, camaraderie and care, or, you know, the idea of the, the importance of trust, because when that, when that ingredient exists, people won't lash out at each other, or they'll be more likely to give each other the benefit of the doubt or support each other in those moments, as opposed to blame and shame that often happens on dysfunctional teams. And most importantly, they seek to understand. So they, mm, they will say, yeah. hey, you made that decision. What, what caused you to go that route? Whether it was a great decision or a, a poor decision, there's lessons to be learned either way. Yeah, that's a really great point. Jody, later in your career, you became the command master chief for the Marine Special Operation Command. And so correct me if I'm not explaining this right, but that's the senior most enlisted officer in that command. Is that accurate? It's the senior enlisted advisor. And so every Marine general, unlike combatant forces, has a command sergeant major, which is a Marine, and a command master chief, which is in the Navy. Okay. So there's three of us. Yeah, and and the general is obviously... That's the officer. That's the boss. The right. sergeant major and the command master chief are enlisted personnel, but it's as high as we can go rank wise, and we're there as, you know, executive advisors, if you will. Yeah, and so at the Marsoc level, remind me, there were about nine thousand um, Marines in that unit. Yeah, it's. I think I'd have to look, and you know, it's it's seven. Seven to nine thousand ish. Okay, uh, and, Marines and sailors and civilians. And then you went back to the conventional Marine Corps, and you had the same role, but in a fifteen thousand person division, and then in a larger forty five thousand person Marine Expeditionary Unit. 
That's correct. Yeah. When I retired, I was at the Marine Expeditionary Force and that's the three-star general level. And we had about 45,000. Okay. And I'm just, I just want to set that tone for for the, the next sort of set of questions because I want our listeners to hear like, this is true executive leadership as it relates to, you know, maybe corporate world. How did things shift for you at sort of at that level when you're moving out of what you called the fun stuff earlier and you're now like truly leading an enterprise? It's interesting the perspective changes. And I always would tell people now I've seen behind the curtain. So the decisions that were being made when you're at the tactical level that you don't always understand, now I've had the ability or the opportunity, I guess is a better word, to, to look behind the curtain and say, wow, I didn't realize there were, you know, I don't know, 25 different uh, pots of money. And this is why this was, right? And because when you're young and you're like, why can't we get this piece of gear? We need it. And then when you see behind the curtain and you realize, well, that money comes from this stream and that stream is closed off right now. That was the biggest change for me because the military, the one thing we do well is as you grow as a leader, you're slowly given more and more responsibility and accountability. So by the time I was at that level, it wasn't a shock where I was like in a team of four and now I'm up, you know, at the 45,000 level, I, they ease you into it. So the leading teams of teams concept was not necessarily new to me. That was easy. It was the, all of the other like things that you just don't know. And then I took it upon myself to try to explain the why as much as I could mm -hmm. to those that I was leading so they could hopefully that would trickle down, you know, to the folks in the field to give them a better understanding. Because as we all know, at this point, if you know why something is happening, you're more likely to get on board. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way to put it to, to you see the curtain behind the curtain, because we see this all the time with our clients. You're out in the field or part of a, a division, maybe, or maybe part of a region for a global organization. And there is oftentimes this rift between corporate and that division or, or region. And what I hear you saying is, well, part of that is because you don't necessarily have insight and visibility into why certain decisions are being made. And that's the responsibility of the leader, in my opinion. Not everything mm -hmm. needs to be shared, especially in great detail, because it just doesn't matter to the people at, at the ground level, the people actually doing the work. Yeah. And in the Navy, we have a rank called chief, and it's kind of when you start getting into the more senior leadership. And I would always tell the, the new chiefs, you're now the bridge between the deck plates and, you know, the people in the Death Star, right? Like the senior leadership. And it's your job to speak both languages. You need to understand what's going on at the higher level and be able to translate that to the field. And then as well, bring the concerns from the people at the deck plates and on in the field to the senior level in a way they can understand. Mm. And I think that's the crux of the problem with a lot of organizations is who's the bridge? Because the reality is that the senior people are not going to be able to be walking around every single day to to touch base with the people in the field. You need those, what I like to call the village elders, right? The people that everybody listens to. You need that bridge, that person that you can explain the why to and know that that is going to reach the people that it needs mm. to at the ground level. Yeah. That's interesting. 
is is that in in maybe a traditional corporate environment is is that your sort of mid-level managers or or maybe you know managers of teams or how, how do you think about that who's the bridge in in a business i think the bridge in the business are people that are leading maybe two teams so they're leading teams of teams right. but it's not massive yet mm-hmm. because they still have touch points going both ways yeah that's the key. And, and every organization is going to be different. So I would say, look at your organization and figure out who has touch points on both sides, like truly not, you know, separated by 10 people. Nice. Okay. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Sometimes what, what, what I'll see is an executive team's ready to roll out a change and they pull together that all hands meeting, which is mostly just one way communication. I mean, even if the intent is to make it conversational, usually there's crickets. And they deliver a message, and oftentimes the message doesn't get cascaded very intentionally. Or if it does, there's not usually a feedback loop that comes back up to the senior leaders to let them know that the message has been cascaded throughout the business. And, and then there's often not the space for dialogue. So it's one creating that one-way message is great at creating clarity, but it's not great at creating buy-in. And so I, there has to be a mechanism, and maybe it's this bridge role that you're that you're talking about that can help both create the clarity as well as the buy-in. And I would also offer how the question of how much input was solicited before the decision was made. Mm-hmm. I see that a lot where senior leaders make decisions when they're really not grounded in in rea- like what's really going on. And one of the things that one of the generals I worked with did, started what they called the sergeant's council. And the sergeant is an E5, and they are deeply embedded in the teams, but kind of senior in the teams. And this was on the conventional side. This isn't a soft thing. But they would meet once a... We would all meet with this this group of sergeants once a month just to kind of get a pulse for what's going on at the field level. Mm. And then run ideas by them of, hey, you know, we're thinking about doing X, Y, and Z, or what resources do you need? Or what blind spots do we have right now as senior leaders? Yeah. And that yeah. was effective in so many ways because it gave us a lot of information and also showed everybody in a massive organization that we really cared and were listening. Mm. What what a practical idea that really anyone can implement, the, the anyway. concept of that. Yeah. Jody, let me see if I can summarize some of our key points from our, from our conversation today. Number one, Part of what you found in terms of like key ingredients for that high performing, high potential team is the starting point is camaraderie and truly caring about each other. And one of the means in which to to get to that point is by understanding each other's roles, each other's jobs. And I love your your equation of understanding equals equals appreciation, which then equals better communication. So that's point one. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Point two. The workups versus the deployments, you train like you fight. And for you, this this is what struck me is your comment about this is an integrity issue. And I love your example about, you know, cracking the mask on, on the gas mask in training, but knowing that, look, things can go pretty south, pretty far south in, in combat or when things get real. And the way that you perform in those workouts is how you will perform in combat or on deployments. So the training matters and how we show up matters. Yeah, training is imperative. 
leadership during crisis. I think point number three here is during crisis, everyone has to take responsibility or accountability for what's going on. And, and to you, that's the mark of a high-performing team and living by the, the the mantra of slow is smooth and smooth is fast and calm breeds calm sets the tone for people seeking to understand instead of lashing out at each other. Yes, definitely. And maybe our final point, sort of at the enterprise level of leadership, this idea that, oh, now you can see behind the curtain and you have a be better insight into what's going on in the business or the organization, it, it drove you as a leader to number one, explain the why so people understand the rationale, look for people who can be the bridge. And those people are folks who, who have insight into what's going on at the ground level or frontline level, but then also have a touch point at the higher level as well. So look for those bridge bridges and then seek input. And your strategy of the sergeant's council that would meet monthly gave that general insight into what was happening at the field level and, and a platform to run ideas by people who truly understand what's happening on the front lines. And the key to that also is that it shows everybody that you care. Yeah, it's a great point. Back to point number one, camaraderie and care. That's right. Jody, thank you so much for being on the show today. And once again, thank you so much for the dedication and, and service that you provided to our country. Thanks for having me, Sal. And as I always say, when people thank me for my service, you're worth it. Our country is worth it. Awesome.